And uh, we're going to jump into our sermon. We're currently in a series called Nameless. And we've been looking at a series of uh, stories in 2 Kings chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, you can go there. We're going to read a passage out of 2 Kings chapter 4. Um, They are stories that are about characters that don't, the names aren't often given. And so that's where the, the, the series title comes from, Nameless. But more so, they're also stories that are often nameless, um, anonymous-type stories, stories that we often don't like to talk about or deal with or pay attention to. One of the other things that's really interesting is many of these stories are stories that we see in the Gospels. Now, 2 Kings 4 happens many, many generations before the Gospel. It's, it follows a character, a prophet by the name of Elisha, who follows Elijah. But Elisha is a foreshadowing of Christ, and so we see, especially in chapter 4 of 2 Kings, these glimpses of these biblical stories that we later see in the Gospels, and today is no exception. So 2 Kings chapter 4, verse, starting at verse 38, oftentimes I'll, I'll preach um, verse by verse. Today I'm going to read the passage, and then we're going to talk about it. So a little different today, uh, but, but honestly is a, way that, uh, is a traditional way of preaching. So there you go. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 38. Elisha returned to Gilgal, and there was a famine in that region. While the company of the prophets was meeting with him, he said to his servant, put on the large pot and cook some stew for these prophets. One of them went out into the fields to gather herbs and found a wild vine and picked as many of its gourds as his garment could hold. When he returned, he cut them up into the pot of stew, though no one knew what they were. The stew was poured out for the men, but as they began to eat it, they cried out, Man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. Elisha said, Get some flour. And he put it into the pot, and he said, Serve it to the people to eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. Well, a man came from Baal Shalishah, uh, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain, along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. Well, how can I set this before a hundred men, his servant asked. But Elisha answered, give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them, and they ate, and they had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we come before you. We ask that you would speak to us today as we reflect on your scriptures. As we look at the struggles of your people so long ago and reflect on the struggles of people still today, come and meet us in this space. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and regardless of what I have to say, that you would minister to us, that you would help us understand what it is you'd have us walk away with, that you'd leave us transformed. Convict us where we need convicted. Comfort us where we need comforted. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Does this story sound familiar? we got some Bible scholars here in the room. What, what story does this sound like in the New Testament? Just yell it out. Anyone know? Yeah, Jesus feeding the 5,000. Uh, uh, I think there was another one. What is it, 4,000? There was a 5,000, maybe 4,000. Am I right? 
Yeah, I've got a couple nods, good. Yeah, it's, it's a very similar story. In fact, you might say that Jesus did this in some ways to like tie his identity once again back to the prophet Elijah. But this is, this is like the OG of the feeding stories right here. And it was only 100 people, but still impressive. He's got a few loaves of bread. And he says, you know, how am I going to feed 100 people with this bread? And, Jesus, and, and Elisha says, well, just do it. And they're going to have some left over. And just like in the story of the Gospels where Jesus does this with 5,000, showing how much greater he is to Elisha, um, they feed, and then there's food left over. At the heart of the story, we have presented to us a very important issue. You might have missed it right there at verse 38. There was a famine in that region. Elisha and the people of Israel have to wrestle with this idea or this reality that food was short to come by. It's why they go and get desperate. Um, when people get really hungry, they get desperate, and they get desperate, and they go find this vine, and it's got a gourd in it, and they're not really sure what the gourd is. But not all gourds are equal, by the way. You know, pumpkin's great, but not all gourds are equal, and some are, will make you sick. And this gourd is not great for them, so they get sick. And Elisha uses his miracle powers and makes it he, uh, edible anyway. So then he does the same thing with the bread, and it's able to spread to everyone. And this is their story. In this in this series, I've been following a very simple outline. And it's uh, something that I learned, and I use it often in passages, but I'm, I use it in the series specifically. It's we're reflecting on what's the problem in the text, and then where does that problem exist in our world today? And then we ask, well, what is God doing in the text in light of that problem, and what is God then doing in the world today? Well, the problem in the text is a famine, or what we call food insecurity. There's a famine, and they're without food. Now, in our world, that is still a problem. Um, I, I recently uh, was thinking about this. Before I get into how it's a problem in our world, I, I want to step back. I, I was reflecting on this quite a bit. Just two weeks ago, we sat up here, and, um, and, and I talked through uh, bonded labor, modern-day slavery, and uh, walked through the ways in which it's been happening in our past, specifically after the emancipation, um, how it played out in racial wars, how it happens in other countries, how most of our products are implicit, you know. And uh, I, got, I got some great feedback on that, on that message, um, w one of which being, like, this is overwhelming, this is, like, this is... This is kind of scary to think that like, we participate in an economy that supports modern day slaves. That's the reality. I have a tendency to speak reality. Um, I, uh, I, I'm not very good at knowing what's appropriate. And uh, so whenever I find out something isn't normal, you know, I take note of it. And um, now, of course, I view normal as just the bias of the majority. That's one way to define it. And uh, that's what we define as normal. Um, but uh, I was thinking about uh, how I'm going to do the exact same thing today with food insecurity. We're going we're gonna to look at some devastating statistics. So are you ready to feel great about the world again? I, and I thought of this. Uh, I think I'm going to skip a little bit, guys, in the slides. Um, I thought of this uh, scene in Matrix. You, you guys ever seen this movie? It's got the red pill and the blue pill. And uh, I had to go look it up. The, the blue pill, if you take the blue pill, you, um, you get to just forget you ever had the conversation, and you get to go on pretending the world is fine, and everything's fine, and there's no, other ma there's no matrix or anything. You don't really know what's going on, but you just get to live ignorant lives. And 
But if you take the red pill, that becomes a locator, and then you, you're taken out of the matrix, and you're shown like how the world really works, right? And um, I, I've gotten the impression uh, from people that, that church is usually a good place to just pass out the blue pill, you know? <laughs> Come to church and be like, everything's great in the world. God loves you, and you are loved, and God's grace is, has, you know, there's room for you in God's grace, and you can go on with your lives, and Pretend like everything's okay. Um, I don't, if you're new with us today, you should know that Central City just, like, we pass out the red pill like it's communion. I mean, <laughs> that's just, like, kind of what we do. We're like, I'm up here like, hey, FYI, this is how, this is what's really happening. And, and we don't want to talk about it, but this is what's really happening. So if you came today hoping for the blue pill, I'm sorry. Here's the red pill. Let's go back to um, the previous slides. Here's some really generic statistics. Over one billion people live on $2.50 per day or less, including 280 million people in extreme poverty who live on less than $1.25 a day. Now pause there for a second. I want you to imagine living on $2.50 a day, because a billion people in the world do. I really want you to stop and think about what would it take to live on $2.50 a day? Just FYI, we went to two restaurants yesterday. And we tip appropriately, 15 to 20%. So with that, I mean, we're talking, this was not cheap meals. Good meals, ate more than we should. But a lot more than $2.50. I can't even, I don't think you can eat out much anywhere for $2.50 unless you're just getting a cup of coffee. Just imagine, what would you have to give up? How would you have to live differently if you only lived on $2.50 a day? I want you to hold on to that because we're going to come back to that in a second. Next one. Between 720 and 811 million people in the world faced hunger in 2020. Nearly one in three people in the world, 2.37 billion, did not have access to adequate food in 2020, an increase of almost 320 million people in just one year made worse, of course, by the pandemic. In Ohio, 1,547,110 people are facing hunger, and of that number, 448,600 are children. One in six children face hunger in Ohio. Why? Why in a world where I can um, order snacks through DoorDash and they're delivered 20 minutes later, Aaron ever do that? I got ice cream. When we, were, we, we did a date night, I was like, I'm ordering ice cream. And I paid you know, 20 bucks to have someone bring me ice cream. In a world where that can happen, just today I ordered new bands for my Apple Watch, you know, so I have better accessories. Found some cheap ones online. Listen to them, you know, they're coming in the mail today. Ordered them yesterday. In a world where that's possible, billions of people go to bed hungry every day. Why? Well, I asked the question, and I looked into it. I found this great report by the World Food Program. It's a massive organization, um, and they put together a report, report called Hunger Hotspots. So they're looking at it from a no, no, not that yet. You can take it down. Um, they're looking at a world. They're looking at hotspots all around the world, and uh, and, and they are exploring. Um, why people end up hungry in certain places. And so um, they, they found that there's a number of hot spots. Uh, there are some that are very, very severe. Ethiopia, Nigeria, South Sudan, and Yemen 
remain at the highest level. And based on their current assessments, these countries all have parts of populations identified or projected to experience not just hunger, but starvation and death. So in a world where I can order multiple watch bands, if I want, there are people who aren't just going to bed hungry. They are, they are projecting to starve to death. Why? Well, the report comes up with a number of uh, reasons. They group them into four categories. I'm going to share them with you. I was surprised by number one. I shouldn't have been surprised. I'll give you a hint. It's not because there's not enough food to go around. The number one reason why people are hungry in the world is because of organized violence and conflict. Wars, terrorists, racial and ethnic cleansing, violence is the number one reason why people in the world right now are starving to death. Now think about this. The main reason there isn't enough food, the main reason there isn't enough food to go around isn't because there isn't enough food to go around. It's that we as humans, we're part of the world, won't stop attacking each other, hurting each other, fighting each other, killing each other. Wars, conflicts, violence, often fueled by greed, a lust of power, racial and ethnic wars, racism in all of its forms is the number one reason there is food insecurity. The fact that yesterday 20 people died in and around a convenience store, a place where you buy food, they were gunned down because of hatred and racism. Just yesterday in Buffalo, New York, is but a glimpse to what is happening around the world right now. Humans who are created in God's image grab for power and wealth, and they take, and they take from each other. And the people who suffer the most are often the ones who are just trying to get by. When there are wars, people can't, people can't plant crops in a field that's a battlefield. You can't plant crops when you've been displaced to a refugee camp. You can't afford uh, food when the prices skyrocket due to supply shortages. We, we are getting a taste of the whole supply shortage issue, you know. I just mentioned formula and diapers, but, you know, there's a variety of other supply issues. First world problems, we had to wait three months to buy a new car because of supply issues, darn it. Just a taste of the supply issues. Wars in other countries create an escalated supply issue. Everything becomes inaccessible and expensive. That's the number one reason. The number two reason is natural hazard risks. Famines, issues related to climate change. I won't get into it now, but um, the sad reality of climate change is that those who most suffer from climate change are the people um, who do the littlest to impact it. You know, it's when we, you know, the wealthy contribute to climate change and the poor in other parts of the country suffer the most. The number three reason is poverty. The number four reason is animal and plant pests and diseases. That's how it looks on a global scale. Let me talk about it locally. So I was interested, uh, we'll put this one up here in a second, Tim, not yet. Um, I was looking, I was Googling, and I said, well, what does food insecurity look like right here in Columbus? What does food insecurity look like in Columbus? And I ran across this article. Can you, can you put it up? Uh, food insecurity. And uh, I was so excited. If you see there, I circled a thing. Uh, my friend helped write this, write this article. And I was like, what a fun connection. Her name's Michelle Kaiser. And uh, I texted her as soon as I saw it. I was like, I was talking about food insecurity, and your name popped up. Michelle, let me tell you, is my neighbor. 
she happens to teach at OSU in social work. She specializes in things like food insecurity and a variety of other social factors. Um, but her and her partner um, have contributed the most in my life in regards to uh, farming. Uh, so her partner, Nick, uh, started, helped start Franklinton Farms. And between Franklinton Farms and Michelle personally, that's where we got almost all of our garden stuff. We, we got um, uh, two beds, um, all this dirt, uh, all these supplies. We even got a little bag of supplies at one point and starter plants. We just picked up our starter plants. And then Michelle personally gave us like five uh, different tomatoes. Uh, I'm really excited, it's super cool. And so when I saw that, I mean, this is, she's living this out, you know, like she's like doing food differently and like um, providing, helping provide. She passed out 300 tomato starts this year that she grew in this um, apparatus that she showed me in her house where they, they have these shelves with lights and stuff. I mean, like she's really doing it. So when I saw that, I was like, that's such a fun connection. Do you know what's not a fun connection? The title of the article. That food inequality in Columbus is related to racial inequality. Welcome to Columbus, everyone. They found in their studies that 32, there's a 34.2% difference in food security between white households and black households in Columbus. And the majority of that is for socioeconomic reasons. She goes on to say this in one of the reports, it is quite possible that structural racism explains part of the food insecurity gap that remains unexplained by our variables. This could include historical and contemporary policies and practices related to employment, wages, housing, neighborhood investment, banking, small business support, and social safety net programs. In the first week, we've talked about racial inequality, racial justice here. But boy, it just, it just keeps popping up, doesn't it? All these different issues seem to intersect in our, in our culture and in our world. I'd say this, that if you're not a part of a community group trying to make a difference in your neighborhood or in your community, I encourage you to become a member today. There's one in Grandview. Uh, there's one in Upper Arlington, a couple, Westerville, Worthington, Olentangy, I believe. And if you need help finding a community organization that's trying to address racial injustice in their community. Now, Columbus neighborhoods is a little harder because Columbus, you know, uh, but most of the suburbs, I think, um, I think all of the suburbs have a diversity, equity, inclusion group. I think Grandview was the last, no knock to Grandview, but I think all of the other ones have one or recently started one. Westerville just started around the same time that Grandview did last year because it's important. I was thinking about this whole sermon and I was thinking about food insecurity and I gotta be honest with you. I, I was struggling to connect with it even today, you know, partly because I don't wanna talk about this stuff, so there's that, and partly because you might not wanna listen to this stuff, so there's that. But just food insecurity in general, you talk about modern day slavery and I can get pretty worked up, but food insecurity feels a little distant to me. The truth is, is I overeat, all right? I snack all the time. I've not been hungry in years. Anyone else? Like hungry. Now, don't get me wrong. If I go without food for like a couple hours, I get a little hangry. 
that's mostly, I think, related to my addiction to the things like sugar and just food in general. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not really hungry. I'm just like grumpy because I didn't eat and I'm used to eating that much. So I really struggle with this. Um, I don't let myself get hungry. My favorite thing to do is eat. It's like probably something I need to work on. Not right now with you all, but just in general. This whole series, though, one of my goals was to increase empathy. So I'm thinking about this from this perspective. How do I feel differently about this topic? How do I get, how do I allow myself to feel differently about this topic? How would I increase my empathy around issues related to food insecurity and the fact that there are people right here in our community, right here in the state of Ohio, that go to bed hungry every day? How do I, how do I, how do I get there? You know, we talk about, about the incarnation. God became flesh. God became like the people that he loved. And I thought, you know what? I should probably go without food at some point just to increase my empathy. This is the thought I had. And then I said, oh, we have a name for that. What do we call that? Fasting. fasting. This is a thing. <laughs> you know, fasting has been used throughout the history of religion and Christian faith as well as others as a way often to be more spiritual. You know, it's the guy on the hill who deprives himself so you can feed his soul. You know, you starve the body, you feed the soul. Now, I know some people who've used it practically even. Uh, I, one guy in particular who's a friend of mine who would uh, fast occasionally for health reasons, and uh, he was on a very interesting diet. Some of you might have known him and heard those stories. But oftentimes, though, it's this very spiritual practice. And I started thinking about it. What if it was more practical than that? What if fasting was a way to increase our empathy? And automatically, I went to one of my favorite passages in the Bible, Isaiah chapter 58. Y'all know this one? Oh, my days. This is a good one. This is a really good one. Um, uh, Isaiah is uh, talking, and, he, and the people of God are so upset. They want to know where God is. God, why aren't you showing up? You know, you get frustrated at the way the world is, and, and, and you're doing all these religious things, and you're very spiritual, and you're, you know, you're fasting and praying, and where, where, the, where the hell is God? And they get mad, and Isaiah comes and gives this word. We put, the, put the words up on the screen, starting with verse 3. He says, why, he's speaking on behalf of the people here, he's kind of like tongue-in-cheek, why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it, God? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? We're doing all these spiritual religious things. Yet on the day of your fasting, Isaiah says, you do as you please and you exploit all your workers. They would take a day off and they would fast and they'd become weak. And so they, their servants had to work that much harder. Kind of missing the point, don't you think? He says, your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Their religious practices of fasting actually made them more violent. And I just got to say, if your religion makes you more violent, you're doing it wrong. Verse 5, is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? It, it, is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? In other words, they were, they were making themselves miserable, hoping that it would earn points with God. So let me just say this. When we talk about hard stuff, I'm not interested in making you feel miserable just so you can feel more spiritual. That's not the goal here. It's just not. God isn't interested in making you feel bad about yourself just for the sake of feeling bad. That's not helpful. He says this instead, verse 6, Is it not this kind of fasting I have chosen, 
to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. You get it? He says, this is what God is interested in. True fasting would bring an end to child labor and modern-day slavery. Bring that back in. Only because the scripture brought it up again. True fasting would bring an end to that. Maybe even practically speaking, we put out a list of things you can do and how you can buy products differently, or maybe how we just go without some things. What do we call it when we go without some things? Fasting. We just we live a little bit differently, and it actually produces a common good in the world. And we no longer contribute to modern-day slavery, but we'll be contributing to its end. And he says the same for food. Verse 7, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? He says, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear and there, your righteousness will go before you. People will hear about what you're doing and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help help, but he will say, here I am. Oh, where's God in all of this? The answer is simple. If you've ever wondered, like, where is God? I feel like God is missing. Remember this, over and over in scripture, God tells you exactly where you can find God. We find God in acts of justice and compassion. Here's how Jesus says it. Very similar to Isaiah 58. Jesus says that when you feed the hungry, when you give clothes to the, to, to, to the naked, when you give water to those who are thirsty, Matthew chapter 25, he says, it is if you are doing that for me. Here's another way of saying that. You want to know where Jesus is? He's in acts of compassion and acts of justice. And he says, when you do that to one of the least of these, it's as if you're doing it to me. And when you don't do that to one of the least of these, it's as if you're avoiding me. When those who are hungry are fed, and when there's enough to go around for everyone. You know, the problem in the text talked about famine, hunger, food insecurity. Um, and, and the way that God responds to that through the person of Elisha is he, he, he takes what they have and he redeems it, you know. He starts with the soup and he makes it edible. And then he takes these small basket of bread and he gets it to, to, to go to lots of different people. So we talked about this two weeks ago. He start, you start with what you have and then you act in faith and you trust that God can do something bigger with it. Because these problems are complex and we can't fix them overnight and I can't solve them on my own. But what I can do is take the little bit that I have and hand it over to God and say, here you go, God. What can you do with it? So here's what I encourage you to do. I'm going to invite you at some point in the next couple of weeks or at some point this year to engage in what we call a week of solidarity. You can learn about it at centralcity.co slash food, or if you go to Central City's website, and click on the menu, you can see Week of Solidarity. And it's very, very simple. Remember, an estimated 1 billion people live on less than $2.50 a day or less. The Week of Solidarity is for you to pick a week where you do the same. Just for one week. A billion people do it every day. The invitation is for you to do it one week. Now, here's how it works. We've not, you're not going to have to do this on your own. Um, 
what we have on the website is uh, a very simple, did you set up my computer? I might be able to show you here, fancy technology. Maybe. Yeah, there we go. So this is the website. Week of Solidarity. And you go down here, you can see some of the statistics that we, uh, that we had, maybe. Did I lose it? I think I lost it. Don't worry about it. You can sign up. Here's how it works. Um, we have a sign up, and what it does is it's going to add you to an automated email list. And so you can pick any week in the next couple of weeks where you want to do this. When you sign up, you're basically saying that the next week you're going to spend just $2.50 a day. So you do it a week ahead of time. And here's why. I just signed up yesterday to test it out. I got my first email, said, hey, in one week you're going to spend $2.50 a day. And, uh, and then we went out to eat, and I was thinking about that. And the week leading up to the week where you do it is almost just as important because you're gonna, I want you to be able to prepare. Now, a couple, if you read the website, it talks about what to do, what not to do. It offers meal options. And then starting on your week of solidarity, whatever week you choose, you'll get an email every day. It'll give you some ideas of what you can eat. It'll give you some reflection questions. It'll give you some scripture readings. And this will come seven days in a row. If you sign up for it, you're gonna get one email when you sign up. And then a week later, you're gonna get one email a day over your week of solidarity. And it'll give you everything you need to be able to reflect on it, to, to, to wrestle with it, and to spend some time learning and growing in your faith. So here's the challenge. When we face these complex problems, I don't think we should shy away. I encourage you to engage. I would encourage you. There, there, you know, if you're the type of person that doesn't do something unless you act on it right now, Go to the website, centralcity.co slash food, and sign up right now. If you're the person and you're more likely to do it, if you just have a couple of you know, days to think about it and maybe plan it out, then spend a couple days, plan it out, and it'll be on your own journey and on, on your own time. But I really encourage you, at some point between now and maybe the end of summer, that you find a week where you can spend uh, a week in solidarity with those who are experiencing one of the great things about this is I, I believe that it'll not only change our hearts and change the way we think about food and um, uh, all of that, uh, but also there's a real practical benefit. One of the last emails you get in, the, in this, these seven weeks of emails talks about, hey, uh, think about what you've saved by not eating out, by buying less food. And here are some organizations, and it lists some local and global food organizations and justice organizations, including some ones that we're involved with and says, hey, why don't you consider taking what you've saved and donating it to one of these organizations? Now we've actually provided, like you, you were literally living out Isaiah chapter 58. Uh, this idea is something that I've done before in our previous church. We stole a lot of the language from it, uh, from uh, Paul Reisler in Central Avenue United Methodist Church, so I want to give credit where that is. But I encourage you to put this on your calendar, to find a time where you can do this. If you're in a small group, it might be fun to do it together. I'm looking at my small group leaders. I don't know if we want to do it together or not. I'll change my schedule. You can think about it. No pressure. They're smiling now. But uh, something you might want to do as a family or something you might want to do with a small group. Uh, I'm going to invite you now to spend some time in reflection as we uh, pray together. God, help us to pray as you taught us.
not to pray, Lord, give us my daily bread, but Lord, give us our daily bread. That this is a prayer about us, our community, our city, our neighborhood. God, we do invite your kingdom to come that we might have our daily bread together. God, when we face complex problems, help us to find simple ways to engage in those. God, I ask that you'd help us lay aside our pride and our arrogance, all those barriers that keep us from knowing who you are and what you want to do in this world and what you want to do through us. Give us hope. Help us be agents of hope. In your name, amen.